0: Hey Snacks! it's Chelsea back for another episode of the Sassanac Files. This week I am discussing the seventh episode of Men in Kilts season one, Clans and Tartans, but before we get to that I want to take a moment to remind you that you can find the Sassanac Files on all sorts of listening platforms including iTunes, CastBox, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio, and many more. Also if you have not had a chance yet make sure you head over to follow the Sassanac Files on both Facebook and Instagram to make sure you are up to date on all of the latest and greatest news concerning outlander seasons seven and eight as well as men in kilts season two and the prequel blood of my blood as if that's not enough if you want updates on what diana gabaldon is up to you can also follow me for that with all of that out of the way let's get into my analysis of men in kilts 107 clans and tartans And Kilts this week, we have a really fun topic. I think it's one that Sam and Graham were really ready to get into because Clan Lands, the book, and this whole project really started out as them wanting to talk about the different clans and the histories of those clans. So if you take a look at the book, that's really the premise of what you're getting, as well as kind of the story of their road trip together. But it's a lot of history. So with this episode, they've taken a couple of the best feuds and covered those as well as given us a good inside look at the making of tartans and plaids. It's a very informative episode, and I'm actually really excited to talk about it. I feel like these are two of the most iconic parts of the Scottish culture. So for me, it was really fitting to have these in the same episode. Tartan is a checked or woolen cloth that is kind of woven together into this really tight fabric. It's a very complex and arduous and laborious task, especially back in the day when they didn't have the benefit of machinery to help them with the warp and weft of the cloth and then the walking of the wool to give it that weatherproof, watertight resistance most tartans, especially back in the 18th century when Outlander takes place, there is a fila Moore and a fila bag. So the fila Moore is a great plaid. That's what it literally translates into. It's this huge bit of tartan. I can't remember how many yards of fabric it is, but it could have been used for all different things. It could have been used to carry food, children, hide weapons, or use as shelter from the elements because that was one of the biggest benefits of having this garment was that it was very warm and very weatherproof. So in the Scottish Highlands, where the weather changes on a dime, it's very beneficial to have something that can kind of keep you dry and keep you warm. Traditionally, The tartans were kind of dyed with whatever local plant life the people could get their hands on. Nowadays, we see these brilliant, bright tartans and every clan has their own iconic tartan or in the case of the McTavishes, has several different tartans for every occasion. But back in the day, they just used what was available to them. So it would kind of make sense that certain clans had certain colors within their tartan because there may be certain plant life that grow in the region that that clan holds. I think that's kind of where the idea of this unique tartan to each clan came from. But the modern day tartans that we see now were actually developed within the Victorian era. So back, we're talking pre-Culloden, you would have seen very kind of muted colors, lots of browns, greens, maybe the occasional purple or red, just based off of maybe berries or flowers that they were using the pigments from. But overall, very... Earth toned. Nowadays, like when you walk into a kilt maker in Edinburgh, you see purples and blues and yellows and reds. Like I said, that came about in the Victorian era when the act of prescription was kind of resolved and Queen Victoria made it okay to wear plaids and play at the bagpipes and kind of embrace the Scottish culture again over a hundred years after the Battle of Culloden. And I think that was actually the first time that a monarch visited Scotland since the Battle of Culloden and the rising of 45. I'm a huge Queen Victoria person. So shout out to one of my favorite shows. If you're a historical fiction person and you're looking for something to watch and you haven't watched Victoria on PBS, go do it now because it's a really good show. (laughs) Anyway, so back to Plades. Something that I thought was actually really interesting whenever you're looking at the registry of tartans because you have to register all new tartans through the official tartan registry sam has his own brand i guess of tartan that's actually created at the prickly thistle which they covered in men and kilts and he said that it was actually kind of difficult to convince the official tartan registry that they should allow them to name one of the tartans sassanac because it's such a derogatory term and they're like well it's got such a negative connotation to it like why would we want to name uh tartan that and then Sam eventually through much back and forth was like no you don't understand Outlander has completely changed the perception of this term and it really means we're all outsiders and like in that we find a commonality and it's really bringing people together so you should name one of these Sassanac and so they approved it but it actually I thought was kind of odd like you never think of having to register a tartan pattern pattern, I guess. You know, I guess the same is true whenever you're looking at Harris Tweed. There's a governmental act that restricts what you can and can't do or what qualifies as Harris Tweed. Yeah, there are lots of restrictions. I mean, I've heard of restrictions like that on alcohol, like bourbon and scotch and all of that. Like they have rules on what constitutes titling it as a bourbon or a scotch whiskey, but I never heard that for fabrics. So I thought that that was kind of cool. So when we're talking about the prickly thistle, it's actually this factory where they make tartans and they utilize These kind of industrial revolution level machines. The two looms that they actually use on the property are from the 1920s and the 1950s. It's really cool for me personally to see how they create a tartan because there are all these like skeins of thread and they feed them into the loom through these eyes to create this warp, which is one direction of the fabric. And then they lift things up using the eyes that they feed through. They lift up and they warp and they weave. And what does she say? There's a hundred shuttles per minute that's just constantly like click, clack, click, clack, click, clack. And to think that that actually used to be a completely manual process just blows my mind. Looms have been around for a really long time, but the shuttle operation used to be completely manual, either by hand or foot levers. You know, at first I was like, wow. That would be really cool to see. And then I got to thinking, you know, I actually have seen something like that. Not a weaving of tartan, but a manual weaving of fabric. I think they were doing cotton fabric in Blowing Rock. Actually, it's in Boone, North Carolina. There's a living history museum and it is geared towards the historical period of the 18th century colonial style whenever people were first moving into the mountains of North Carolina. It's got several cabins that were found in the area that are circa early 1700s to like 1780s, 1790s. So you can kind of go in and see what a cabin looked like typically at that time, what they were sleeping on, what their blankets looked like, what their dishware looked like, how they cooked, and just basically how people lived, which is really cool. And in one of the cabins that they have, they have all kinds of cloth goods and they actually have a manual loom there. The shuttle is operated with a pedal. So if you're in the North Carolina area or going to the North Carolina area, Boone and Blowing Rock is the area that inspired Fraser's Ridge for Diana Gabaldon. And there's a living history museum in Boone. It's pretty budget-friendly, I want to say it's like $10 to get in or something like that. And if you go in the summer, they actually have reenactors who can answer your questions and show you how things work. And it's a really cool experience. So I highly recommend it. Anyway, that's kind of the idea of tartans in general. We talked about walking wool a couple episodes ago, which again is a very intriguing process to me. And they actually talked to a walking society. One thing that I noticed about that is that they're all older women. And I kind of just would have loved to have seen some younger girls taking up this tradition and kind of keeping the oral tradition alive because these walking songs are such a critical part of Scottish history that it really just, I think, would have been great to see the younger generation involved. And I hope that it was kind of like uh, seniority base, like whoever's been here the longest gets to be on men and kilts thing. And that it's not just that the younger generation isn't showing any interest in that. Now on to some clan lands shenanigans. <laughs> Two of the, the funny little breaks that we get in this episode actually took place on the original road trip with Sam and Graham that takes place in the book. We have the ski lift which Graham is absolutely terrified of heights, like capital T terrified. And Sam just enjoys putting him in these situations where Graham is just not comfortable. And I love how Graham's like, yeah, why don't we just title the show Mocking McTavish? Because that's pretty much all you do this entire time. And then you get the tandem bicycle incident, which was probably one of my favorite things to read out of the Lands book. Graham's talking about how he had to make a choice whether he wanted to sit in the front and control the handlebars or sit in the back, let Sam drive again, and stare at Sam's ass the whole time. So Graham was like, well, it really wasn't any sort of decision. Like, he very much wanted to sit in the front. If he was going to have to ride this ancient tandem bicycle, he He was going to sit in the front and he was going to steer. Well, what he didn't count on was Sam being the absolute child that he is and just randomly not pedal. <laughs> so Graham was basically just pedaling for them both. And I love the line, I cannot believe this was your idea of a good time. Evidently, Stars thought it was a good line too, because it made the trailer for Men in Kilts. But yeah, I really enjoyed this this little snippet of them kind of traveling through Scotland and enjoying a little bit of the scenery. And I don't know where they were riding this tandem bicycle, but it was really beautiful. Some of the gardens that they were riding through, I just was like, oh, I would love to go for a walk there. It looked so pretty, didn't it? Now we're going to chat a little bit about clans. There's a line in clan lands. It's Graham writing. And he said, there's a saying Scotland was born fighting, and feuding is something that the Highland clans have turned into an art form. Venetians have their glass, Persians have their rugs, and the Scots have their feuds. And I thought that was a really great way to kind of start talking about the clans and the clan system, because it was a bloody, bloody time. From about 1300 to 1600 was a period known as the clan wars and was hands down the most violent period of Scottish history. So within that time, there are tons of things going on between different clans. So it's not like one clan completely making trouble and everybody's pissed at them. No, it's like clan A is fighting with clan C and clan B is fighting with clan D, but B and C are allies and A and D so-and-so is married to so-and-so It gets very complex. So for the sake of time and for the sake of simplicity, we're just going to talk about a couple of those clans and feuds today because there are a ton of both. But just know that... You don't have to scratch the surface very far to find a clan feud in the Scottish Highlands that even still to this day is kind of there, embedded in the culture. And that's one thing that whenever we talk about the McDonald's and the McLeods, they're saying, you know, even these things that happened hundreds of years ago, it started this knock-on effect that we still feel to this day. And I don't know how seriously some of these feuds are taken. I know that some are more serious than others, I guess. And then I think some are like, just quote unquote, like feuding just for the hell of it. Like they don't really give a crap anymore. (laughs) So I don't know like what level it is. I've never legitimately sat down and chatted with anybody in a clan that has a feud with another clan. I think that would be very interesting. Don't get me wrong. But the word clan comes from the Gallic word clan. And it's basically an idea from the time of the Druids and the Celts, where this huge group of dysfunctional blood ties would come together and elect a leader that they would call a chieftain. And that chieftain was kind of the father figure of the clan. And he would make sure that everybody was safe and taken care of and resolve disputes and provide for everyone, make sure everyone was fed and that they had what they needed, the basics to survive. So we see that mentality in Outlander. I think it's something that they did really well. We see it with Column providing for the Mackenzie clan and, and trying to keep the peace, as it were. There's this internal struggle for power. The clan system is a bit different than what you typically think of with, say, the royal family. It's not something that is Truly inherited. It's not like the firstborn son is the one to inherit when the father dies, etc. It can be like that, and sometimes it was like that, but the clan system is what is called a tanistry, which means basically anyone within the family that is perceived to be qualified or capable of the job can be put forth. So whenever we're watching season one of Outlander, it's a bit different than it is in the book. so we'll keep to the show because I think I think it's a better example to talk about the show. When we're talking about season one of Outlander, we see that Colum and Dougal and Jamie have this tension and it's because Jamie is the son of Colm and Dougal's sister Ellen. Dougal feels that he should be in line to inherit the chieftainship from Colum, but Column feels that Jamie is more capable and more appropriate for the task at hand. His mix of know-how and affability, people like him, but he's also responsible and has a sense of wanting to do right by his men. That really stands out to Colum as being the mark of a leader. Dougal is much more recognized and doesn't think about the welfare of other people when he's making his decisions. It's a very like kind of self-centered motivation for him. So that's kind of how we see this sway back and forth of the Tanistry the chief can name a successor, but that doesn't mean that once he passes, that's who takes over. The clan very much has a say in who rules over them. Even going as far as season two, the end of season two, after Jamie kills Dougal, Rupert refers to Dougal as his chief. Rupert is a Mackenzie. Colm has recently died. Colm has made it clear that he wants Hamish to follow him with Jamie as his guardian, but Rupert sees Dougal as his chief. So it's very much in the eye of the clan system. Like they have to trust their chief and their chief has to do right by them. There's a level of trust that has to be had there. The clan system that we see in Outlander really started to kind of take root in the 16th century. This is because marriage alliances were being made And this consolidation of wealth and power was beginning to take place. So you have these smaller groups that are starting to marry people off. Again, we see this portrayed in Outlander. Like I said, I think it's something that Diana did really well in portraying the clan life. And I think we're going to see this kind of play out a bit more in the prequel that she's writing that circles around Ellen and Brian. Ellen Jacasta, Dougal, Column, and Janet are the five children of Red Jacob. Column takes over for Jacob when he dies. And when Colum takes over, he starts marrying off all of his sisters. Jacasta marries a Cameron. He wanted Ellen to marry a Grant, but she ended up marrying a Fraser. And so all of these family ties really start to weigh in on the allegiances that these clans have with each other. And they pick and choose their marriages. Based on who they want to ally with, what's going to bring them more power and wealth. It's a super interesting dynamic that I could literally go down a rabbit hole on and talk forever. But there are some really cool stories that are involved as well. Out of this alliances of marriage, we start to get the clan system as we knew it in the 18th century when the risings were starting to take place. You have the chief, which is literally the law of the land. He sits at the top of the heap, and then it's kind of a tiered system from there. You have the taxmen who are under the chief, and they have small holdings with working farms. And then under the taxmen, you have the cotters, which they don't really own their land. They're renting it from their taxmen. And they make enough to live off the land and provide for their families, but not really enough to kind of make more of themselves, if that makes sense. They have enough to live and that's about it. I think a taxman would be like the real place to be because you're in the middle, you're working with the chief towards a common goal. And I think taxmen were probably uniquely placed to step up into another realm if the chief looked kindly on them. We see a couple of people within the Outlander series in the books. It's not really covered very much in the show that were taxmen to different clan chiefs. And that's a very intriguing dynamic because they're always constantly like ready to reach for more power, but only if they're given the opportunity to reach. And then I think that kind of caused some resentment as well. We've kind of talked about the basics of the clan. We're gonna talk about two of the big feuds. Both of these were covered in Clan Lands and Men and Kilts. So I'm gonna kind of work off of what we got in Clanlands and the show to give a pretty well-rounded picture. So the first feud that we touch on in the show is the McLeods in the McDonald's. In 1577, three young McLeod men came over to McDonald land. I believe they were looking for potential matches, but they made quite a few inappropriate advances towards McDonald women. And the McDonald men did not take kindly to that sort of behavior. So they bound these McLeod men hand and foot, set them adrift in a boat off the coast of Egg and just whenever they drifted ashore is whenever they drifted ashore. That sounds pretty legit to me. Definitely seems like something that would have been done on the regular. I don't know if that's feud worthy (laughs) if you get my drift. So I don't know if that's like the whole story or not. But round two, the McLeod chief does not take kindly to his men being treated in such a fashion and decides to retaliate. So they go over to the Isle of Egg and start to chase after these McDonald's. The McDonald's take shelter in a sea cave there, and the McLeod's decide to set a fire outside the cave. Some say with the intent to kill them, some say with the intent to smoke them out and then kill them. Regardless, they end up massacring 350 McDonald's with the lighting of that fire. They all suffocate to death in the cave from the smoke. So round three, the McDonald clan then decides to retaliate, and this is where we get the massacre at Trump and church the McDonald representative and the McLeod representative and Sam and Graham all meet at Trump and church on the Isle of Skye. This happened in 1578, and I could be wrong about this, but I believe that the people that were in the church were primarily women and children at their daily prayers, and the McDonald clan sets fire to the entire church with everybody in it. It said that while the bagpipers were playing and they were actually murdering all of these people, the McDonald's were shouting, remember the massacre at Egg. Can you imagine just for the hell of it setting fire to a church full of men, women, and children? Like, no holds barred, just setting fire to the thatch and killing everybody inside. It's so nuts. Like, I just can't imagine a time where that kind of violence was not only done on the regular, but seemingly encouraged. It just seems so wrong to me. And and it was an everyday occurrence there. It just it was done. It was a very unsafe time for you to live, not only for the diseases that were killing people left and right and the threat of starvation if your crop failed, but also clans taking out clans. It was just insane. So that is a feud that to this day kind of still doesn't sit right. The McLeods and the McDonald's still don't really get along very well. And that's kind of where that all happened back in 1578. So we're talking like 450 years ago, these things were happening and you still feel the tension today from these two massacres at Egg and then at Trump and Church. The second feud is the... McGregor's, and the McLarens. Now, this feud really got its start with Rob Roy McGregor, who was a famous reaver, which a reaver is someone who steals other people's cattle. He was kind of the Highland Robin Hood, is how Graham put it in the show. He was very well beloved throughout his clan, but step outside of McGregor lands and you're going to find much resistance. It's said that Rob Roy is the originator of the term blackmail. As people were traveling through McGregor Lands, he would offer to protect people's cattle for the price of blackmail. And if they did not provide this blackmail, then he would personally steal these people's cattle and they would never see it again. He wasn't just a cattle thief. I think a lot of Rob Roy McGregor's behavior was extremely questionable, especially when you start looking at the perspective of other clans. Rob Roy was actually killed in a fight with the McLarens, and so the McGregors and the McLarens kind of were at each other's throats for the better part of... A long time. And he was actually severely wounded in one of these fights. So they kind of called a ceasefire, all took their wounded. And then Rob Roy actually passed away a couple of weeks later. And so one of the big sticking points now for both of these clans is. Where is Rob Roy McGregor actually buried? So it's said by many a reliable source, you would think anyway, including Rob Roy's two sons and Sir Walter Scott both say that he is buried at this churchyard where they go in men in kilts. The kicker is this grave is actually on McLaren land and has been on McLaren land since Rob Roy's time. The McLaren's whole thing on it is why on God's green earth would we let Rob Roy McGregor rest in peace in our own Kirkyard after everything that he did when he was alive? It just doesn't make any sense. And so while I understand where both are coming from on a personal level, I do kind of side with McLaren's on this one, because why would you hate this guy's guts so much that you would actually be the cause of his death? And then once he dies, just say, oh, you know what? Let bygones be bygones. Sure, you can be buried in our Kirkyard. It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So I get that his grave supposedly lies there and there's a grave marker there that you can actually visit, but I kind of tend to agree with the standpoint that this is likely just a monument of some sort, not actually where he's buried. That's kind of the two clan feuds that we cover in this episode. A couple of notable things about Clan Gregor. That clan was actually outlawed for nearly two centuries because of Rob Roy and all of his mischief. Um, Their name was Mud. So the men were not allowed to marry. Women were legally allowed to be branded and have their children taken away from them and they weren't allowed to use their surname of Gregor they were known as children of the mist because they kind of just had to fade in and out of existence and not really they had like a a nomadic existence I guess because it was very dangerous to be a member of the Gregor clan members could be stripped whipped and even sold into slavery and at one point their heads could be sold to the government in exchange for pardons for several different misdemeanors I'm not going to go into the list because it goes on and on but just the idea that you could literally kill someone from Clan Gregor and turn in their head to the government in exchange for your own freedom is absolutely ridiculously nuts, okay? (laughs) Like, I just, I can't believe something like that. Like, that blew my mind when I read that. So, so crazy. We'll wrap up this episode with... Two clans that we should be very familiar with at this time. We visit Castle Sween, which is the clan seat of the McTavish clan, which I thought was really cool. And you could genuinely tell that Graham got a little emotional visiting it. He's very big into his heritage and the stories that go with that heritage. Something that's interesting, I think, that he said was that the McTavish clan actually originated from Ireland. They came over from Ireland and they married into the Sween family in Scotland. That's why Castle Sween has the name that it does. I guess many Highland clans actually got their start in Ireland and then came across the Irish Sea to Scotland. So I really thought that that was cool. And then on the flip side, you have the Fraser clan who came over with William the Conqueror from France and just kind of drifted on up into Scotland and made a home there, kind of intermarrying between the clans to create the this Fraser clan and they've been in Scotland for almost 900 years now and at one point were one of the most powerful clans there. They kind of just used their marriages to create these really steadfast alliances. And two of their primary enemies within the clan system were the Mackenzies. So that's accurate that the Frasers and the Mackenzies did not get along in real life and they did not get along in Outlander. And then the Athel Murrays were their other enemies. They all bordered each other in their lands up towards Inverness. Sam doesn't really have any particular allegiance, and he doesn't really know his heritage. I forget what he said. I think towards the end of the Clanlands Almanac, Sam actually talks about discovering his own heritage and which clan he's actually technically a part of. I can't remember what it was. I want to say that it was either like a Cameron or something like that. But yeah, that's kind of the story of Clans and Tartans in the Men and Kilts and Clanlands universe. The Sam and Graham shenanigans of the week, though, had to hands down be whenever they were acting like 10 year old boys when they were taking off in the seaplane (laughs) and they were like doing their uh, (laughs) and you know like just playing around there literally reminded me of two boys playing war with like machine guns and stuff like that I just smiled when I saw that And then our witty one-liner of the week has to be when Sam is talking about the story of the clans being interwoven into Scottish history like threads of a tartan. I really like that. It's not something that's funny witty, but it's very intelligent and draws a strong connection between the Scottish culture and the clan system. Every episode, they do a wrap-up and kind of recap what they talked about. And I really actually liked this particular recap for this episode because there's something about seeing this huge feast with them in their kilts and their Prince Charlie jackets with all of this taxidermy and fancy food sitting around and the whiskey and the fire in the background. It just... It looked really cool. Something about that is like eye candy for me. So I really did like this episode. I thought you could really tell that this is kind of what Sam and Graham had envisioned for this project when it first started. So I think they really enjoyed covering it. Not much news on the Outlander season seven front this week. We got another little video dropped, a little behind the scenes thing. They're starting to do these cast interview releases. It's like they did like 20 questions and then they asked all the cast members the same question. And so this week it was about who's more likely to take a nap on set. So what we got was Sam and Richard, but John Bell and Charles Vandervart also like to take naps on set. And then Sophie's like, it's not that I wouldn't want to take a nap on set. It's just you come out of your trailer with your wig hanging off and it's pretty impossible to nap in a corset. So I like that we're kind of getting to know our cast a little bit more through these questions. And also, I do have a feeling we're going to be getting a trailer soon because I feel like we're getting very regular posting on the Outlander stars account count right now, which generally means that they're trying to start popping up in people's feeds more so that whenever they drop this trailer, they get more exposure. I would look for a trailer within the next week or two, which would be like the last week in April sometime. That's kind of my guess. Don't pin me down on that because I, I have no source other than my own intuition, but that's kind of what I'm thinking. Just a reminder, I did start a Patreon, so if you want access to additional stuff that Sassanac Files related. My show notes are on there. I'm posting between one and two show notes a week. All of my knee-jerk reactions for all new Outlander material, including bonus material, trailers, behind-the-scenes stuff, and new episodes of Outlander as they come out when season seven starts up in June will all be on there. That is for the regulator tier or higher. And then if you really want to pitch in and help the Sassanac Files thrive, you can do the Jacobite tier, which has my travel vlogs for all of my travels because I do love to trot And you'll also have access to Zoom calls to discuss new episodes of Outlander whenever they air. We're gonna do one Zoom call for every two episodes and we're just gonna chat, shoot the breeze about what we thought about new episodes. It's gonna be really fun. I wanna try to have a really inclusive atmosphere and provide some fun details for you guys. My favorite little thing that I'm providing on Patreon are my blog posts. And those are gonna cover everything from costume design to filming locations to the history behind Outlander. So I really hope that you can find something beneficial. Head on over to Patreon and check it out. And I look forward to talking to you there. Alrighty, guys, I am done for the day. Make sure to join me next week for my chat on the last episode of season one of Men in Kilts, The Battle of Culloden. Until then, you guys stay safe out there and I'll chat at you later. Bye.